welcome, welcome, everyone. Thank you so very much for joining Patrick and I today for another exciting episode of Talking Cloud Podcast. My name's Grant Asplund. Of course, with me, my highly dubious technical co-host, Patrick. How are you, Patrick? Wonderful. You know, Grant, we just set the clocks ahead an hour. Spring has sprung up here in the Arctic tundra of Western Canada, so I'm very, very excited. Yeah, you know, I, I'm hoping it springs uh, soon here because, man, it's just, I think we've been on average of like between 5 and 10 degrees below average mm. so far this year. It's just been really, really chilly, although um, I got no complaints. I don't live in California. I don't live uh, in the Northeast getting hammered in New right. England. So, you know, right. I'm, I'm Little okay. to complain about overall, so, you bet. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm a lucky man. So, hey, why don't we just go ahead and jump right into the newsroom? There's certainly some big news to talk about. So let me jump <laughs> there over ever? there. All right. Is there anything else right now? I think my little animation uh, died, but uh, that's really not a big, not a big whoop. Um, it's the whole SVB thing. Gosh, Patrick, I, I got to tell you, man, I used S SVB when I owned MetaInfo for Is that you right? know, a, a, a bunch of years, and I, I just I'm, I'm shocked. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm literally, I'm shocked. But, you know, I heard Charles Payne talking about this collapse, and he really put it into perspective for me. He, he really helped. He says, look, I mean, these guys, you have to realize, did you know that at Silicon Valley Bank in 2020 had over 500 IPOs? In wow. 2021, they had more than double, over 1,000 IPOs. These guys were swimming in money. Sure were. So what yeah. they did is they invested it, and they made a really, really, really bad choice. They invested it in bonds based on the interest rates, and it was when interest rates were so low, and they just got caught. Boom. I, yeah. I mean, and, and, and the other thing, and I, this is what's different, right? We have Twitter now. Do you know that that in a matter of 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 seconds, forty two billion dollars was taken out? They were a yeah. billion <clears throat> overdrawn on their uh, uh, actual assets. That's and one of the big differences we're not talking about enough is just how quickly that news can disseminate. And even if it's true or, or not, it almost doesn't matter how quickly that news can kind of flow via social media now versus, you know, b b before it really proliferated like it did. I mean, it's not the reason they collapsed, but it was certainly the vehicle, wasn't it? Totally. And in fact, now Credit Suisse is the one that's, you know, they're talking about uh, maybe on the ropes again. And yeah, I think what's yeah. a big, a bigger concern, a bigger concern certainly is the fact that, you know, your country may not be in the same boat as us, but, you know, we owe more than we are actually worth down here in yes. America. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a good, that's not a good position to be in. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about with SVB. You know, we uh, don't have enough money to give it to everyone right. if they wanted it all at one That's time. That's right. If, right? Anyone, I mean, if everyone comes calling, we, there, there's no possible way to do it, right? How, what we would have to do to do it would bankrupt our country. And, and that's we're not a lot different up here north of the border for sure. But, yeah, yeah I mean, but the, SB, you, you, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, SVB I was just for us. Is, is really a big deal, right? I mean, it's uh, oh. a, 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 for those that have seen the show, the startup stand up segment is, is, is dear to our hearts. You and I kind of work in the startup scene. Uh, SVB has been my customer uh, probably three times kind of in my career, right? So, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it, it, kind of a special place in our hearts. Just about all of our startup um, founder friends were, were affected. And, and for, you know, just about a week, we're super uncertain about you know, how they pay their kind of operating costs. So yeah, it's scary, yeah. really scary and close to home. For me, too, I think what really is concerning is while I, 
you know, this is so schizophrenic because on one hand, it's like, wow, could you imagine? I mean, we're in the middle of the richest zip code on the planet, okay? I mean, there's so much money there. They have a thousand IPOs in 2021. These guys had so much money. But you're, you're also talking about the tech industry. I mean, where, you know, large tech companies boast millions, if not billions in cash, right? So my point is this whole FDIC insured for 250K, you know, that yeah. probably isn't even good enough for the employees of many of their customers, let alone the actual right. customers. And um, my concern, though, is, and, and it had to happen, but, you know, our administration's come in and said, you know, everybody's going to be protected. Everyone's going to be protected fully. Well, where's that money coming from? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the administration says, oh, it's going to it's going to come from, you know, the banking industry and the banks and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty startling um, how much of a ripple effect this whole this whole thing is having, because, I mean, I was reading about um, Charles Schwab, the individual Charles Schwab, who's got most of his holdings in Charles Schwab, uh, the company. You know, he wrote off about three billion uh, because of this collapse. And I'm sure many, many others. But the, the point is, you know, when. This is the, the the treacherous trail we traverse is um, when do you say no? Yeah. I mean, if the next bank says, hey, I, you know, are we going to just we'll always bail out? I mean, that's not possible either. It's sort of like the student loan forgiveness. Right. I mean, what it's just it's a it's a. Yeah, it's an ugly I'm, situation. I, I'm with you. I'm not 100% clear on where that, how that debt gets kind of hole in the end if someone buys it or if, to your point, if the vehicles that SVP kind of uh, did invest in eventually kind of pay off. I'm not sure how that happens. But, yeah, it's hard to, hard to fathom how much – well, we, we know how much money they held, but it's hard to fathom, you know, how much money all these companies – you know, when you close your seed round, when you close your round A, that – not always do you have all of that money at that time, but you you have a good healthy chunk of it, and that goes directly Heck into yeah. you know SVB. That's right, yeah. and and is needed you know almost daily kind of to to operate in the start too. That's the scary part. But I'm glad yeah, that uh, I'm glad they can sleep now for sure. Char- Charles comment uh, Charles Payne's comment is he says you know they had all this money from all these IPOs, but Joe Schmo walks in and wants to borrow it. They're not going to loan it to him. You know, so so they had all this money, but they weren't making loans to the everyday Joes, right? No. Uh, no. But yeah, it, it, it'll be really interesting to see how things uh, play out. Yes. So this is actually a story that um, is based on some research by uh, Palo Alto Networks. Um, but I liked it, and I, I wanted to uh, talk about it a little bit because I think it really represents a microcosm of the industry we're in overall, right? We've, we've, we've gotten here by best of breed, best of breed, best of breed bake-offs, but now we're kind of in this um, you know, crosshatch patchwork of solutions where there are lots of gaps. Um, well, what is happening is, you know, when I talk about cloud, Patrick, I always, you know, say that, you know, cloud and specifically cloud native, you know, if you think of it, 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 technology is this huge, massive river, cloud and cloud native is the fast part of the river, right? Mm Because there's always varying speeds of of how the river moves. And, And I would suggest that it's one of the faster, if not fastest, parts of the the river in terms of its advancements, its changes, its evolutions, uh, and evidence of it. I think is is this story about how you know people are finding themselves getting dozens and dozens of tools to deal with all of the little. Uh, 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 needs, right? Use cases that yep. are emerging and the new ones that are coming up in cloud because the pace is so fast. And so it seems like this is kind of uh, history repeating itself. 
yeah. just in an accelerated fashion. It's not going to take us 30 years to figure it out. We figured it out in five, right? I mean, remember when you and I were together at Dome 9, it was cloud security. That's right. And from from 2018 to 2023, we went through IAM and 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 SIM and and uh, posture management and you know API right. security and pipeline yeah. security data and, security posture management and uh, yeah and, right yeah. and yeah. and now we got the CNAP bucket right which really says a collection of tools <laughs> clear as mud um, but I think it's interesting that you know we're we're kind of running right back into that same problem but I think it's a cautionary tale because the cloud is moving so fast. Um, That's right. It kind of puts you. I mean, the, it, it's it's really interesting, right? Because you have large organizations like Palos and others like Checkpoint and others that have huge cloud platforms, but there's no way they can generally, I'll say, um, innovate and keep up nearly as as quickly as the new startups that are popping up, solving unique solutions. That's right. right? Um, That's right. So it's just it's interesting is so I'm a, a large enterprise. Do I go buy a platform? Do I go buy a collection of point solutions? Hoping just it. I, I mean, yeah. it's really it's it's a very it's tough. You got to tackle the big rocks and focus on what's most important to you. I would suggest uh, as opposed to what the sales reps telling you. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, ag agreed. I mean, I think there is value in some of these combined platforms. You know, Prisma touts a lot of information sharing between kind of the pillars of their platforms in reality there's really not that much right they they acquire these platforms and, and i'm picking on palo alto but it's it's no different anywhere else they acquire these platforms and quite often they don't do a lot of amalgamation between them anyways and so when you're buying a platform are you buying truly a platform or are you buying a bunch of solutions that come together under one skew right it's yeah, uh to, it's a little bit it's yeah. a little bit and and then, and then as an enterprise there's a trade-off, right? If you're going to go the platform route, then you are signing up to be, you know, two to five years behind the curve on, you know, these solutions to your point that have popped up since CSPM 1.0, since the Dome 9 days. Bigger focus or, on identity, bigger focus on the, you know, <laughs> the data me. specific, bigger focus on the app. And that's really strategic. Yeah. And, you know, until the platform vendors... Uh, come to that conclusion, uh, M&A, buy those companies, amalgamate them in, you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be sort of left out of that, that pocket, if you will. Or you make the conscious choice uh, to do both. You know, yes. you're going to be very selective. And I would suggest that, you know, the newer stuff, those are going to be more specific use cases. The stuff that's proven and around that's more in the platform, I would argue that's kind of more table stakes as you move sure. into cloud, cloud native, right? Posture. I mean, sure. you got to have it, right? Yep. Yep. Um, but some of the cooler, newer um, things, you know, maybe some of the API shift left pipeline stuff isn't that big of a deal to your organization because you're just getting into cloud, right? So sure, of course, it's, maturity it's, matters. It, 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 yeah, it does. Yeah, in fact, it does. We're, we're going to have a guest pretty soon on the program that that is addressing this problem, right? In in a sort of not sort of in a in a quite a unique way. Yeah, very unique way. Which actually is a great segue to my last story before we hand it back to you. I saw this and I thought, man, the the new reality is fake. Hmm. Or mean, at least it's um, it's not uh, a given, right? It's it, it's the the odds of it being manufactured are very high. Look at here, are according to Sentinel, real. yeah, nine hundred percent year over year increase. You know, there's uh, talk of. You know, forecasting as much as 90% of the content that we will see on the Internet in the next, say, five or 10 years will all be created, manufactured, right. not right. really you. And already today, I don't know if you've seen it, but the, the AI technology that's starting to get out into the wild, you could literally type in anything you want, any of this litany of voices to say, right, right, from President Biden to any other famous voice, 
and it's it's getting harder and harder to depict between live and Memorax, you know, between For someone sure. actually talking and a and yeah. a and an AI created voice. It's really amazing. So that's right, it's, and it's not we're, just we're the voice some, side. You know, it's the imagine imagine that ability, and then having an AI sort of look at all of your social presence, learn what's important to you, and then act like you, and then sound like you too. I mean, boy, that's a yeah. that's a scary uh, that's a scary uh, thought for I mean, identity theft, but but lots of other sort of domains too. Yeah, you know, I think. Um where we're headed, it's really quite, it's kind of scary because in just a few short years, I mean, we already have seen the cause and effect of disinformation, inaccurate and propagated false information. Um, this is going to be a huge, huge issue because you're going to, I mean, you think it's hard now. Just wait. It's going to, it's going to be interesting. And, and boy, the parallels between what you and I talk about in terms of cybersecurity so often, identity, digital identity, and physical identity, I mean, they're coming together so quickly. You know, yeah. it's not physical, obviously. It's still a digital representation. But when something can look like me and talk like me and act like me, boy, that's a scary idea. I mean, you can it's, convince a lot it, of people. It, well, well, the world, I mean, I the world is powered by Zoom now, right? It's 2023. It, that's right. And isn't there some uh, line... Looks like a duck, <laughs> walks like a duck, must be a duck. You got to throw that away because yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be yeah. a duck. It's a computer. That's right. You have to be in front of me. That's right. <laughs> and, That's know, right. We know how often that happens for sure. That's uh, right. Okay, good. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit about two two stories. Then I I really wanted to focus uh, as you did, kind of on the SVB story. I'm glad I'm glad we did, but I found two other things, and this isn't actually the original article I wanted to bring up. The the, the one I did was offline, but it's okay. It'll 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 serve as a good placeholder. You know, we talk in previous episodes about multi cloud, how realistic that strategy is. I think you know there's there's talk and there's work. Um, there is some open source advocacy and work, I think, coming out of F5 on a um, uh, cloud agnostic and, you know, one layer kind of above cloud provider uh, sort of mm. networking mesh. Um, we're going to talk about identity projects that are also kind of one level above, you know, the cloud. And I think the intent of all these projects is to allow applications, let's call them workloads, to run, you know, independent of a specific cloud provider. Yeah. So imagine now how you do your networking, let's say within AWS, you build an app and you know it might run at times when costs are less, it might run in certain regions for data sovereignty reasons and your app might kind of make those decisions kind of semi-autonomously even now with the data it has. Yeah. Imagine expanding that across you know, two or three or more cloud providers either for economic reasons, for availability reasons, for performance reasons, who, who knows why, but, you know, having a, a sort of a meta controller that can run your app above this quote unquote super cloud, it's becoming more and more of a concept, I believe is still relatively theoretical and all, but, you know, a, a very few sort of corner cases, but maybe becoming yeah. more realistic thanks to a lot of these projects. Yeah, well, and I, it just, it seems like this is kind of, uh, wash rinse repeat when you think about abstraction yes right and and and, and what we're doing is we're kind of leaping above it and and because we have now the power the memory the compute we can we can jump up above it you know metaphorically speaking of course and it's kind of interesting how we've seen this occurring right um I mean, remember um, software-defined networks, right, where we jumped above the definition of the OSs in these switches and routers and hardware and said, hey, let's abstract away from that. A switch should just switch. And, right. and you know, so we've right. seen this occur. You could, you could uh, I, I guess, argue to a certain degree a similar thing is happening with browsers and different companies making uh, their whole – product is the browser island for example and, mm -hmm. and others you know it's and and frankly this notion of i talk about this when i go out and talk about cloud the problem with multi-cloud 
is you call it S3 and I call it blob and somebody else calls it storage. And we all know it to be a place to save stuff, but we have a different nomenclature. And so the notion of abstracting to a super cloud and having a set of uh, an alphabet, a dictionary, call it what you want, a schema that can be used commonly across them all, be pretty cool. It would be, you know. I think I think the challenge there, and, and you sort of uh, alluded to it, is that you know, if 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 you're S three and I am some other sort of uh, uh, you know stored sort of blob vendor, and you've got a set of features that are really cool and I don't, and I'm going to build an abstraction layer to use both of them. Now, what happens, right? Do exactly. I have to use yeah. the the least of breed, you know, instead right. of the best of breed? Right. Exactly. We're we're yeah. kind of down to we're at that. Uh, um, the lowest common denominator. Oh, you want the really cool stuff? Well, you gotta you gotta use the native interface. This sometimes that's has... true. Sometimes that's true, right? And so, well, but, no, but, I guess but, I'm just thinking. I'm thinking about this super cloud and how it could have a superset or some some you know all of these functions work across any of the five, six, twenty clouds that are compliant right. with this right but you're going to get a fraction you're you're going to they're going to have to differentiate on why you want to use me over or yeah. or over somebody else right 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 on more than just cost or more than just performance but actually feature yeah. sets maybe so yeah it becomes it becomes complicated i think the way that's interesting to me is some of these software projects, and we're going to have a guest on, on soon that talks about this too, some of these software projects that you can run on top of the cloud that solve some of these problems, right? With right. identity, for example, that don't rely yeah. on your cloud provider, but do tap into the features you might already use, right? Do tap right. into your identity stores and expose that information up into the lake. Because the worst thing to do is, you know, the trend kind of in the early 2000s was to recreate everything twice. Once cloud, yeah. once private. And, you know, thank, thankfully we're not, we're not that dumb anymore, but it's a challenge yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, I think, you know, I, I am excited about um, uh, the upcoming guest we have because he's doing some really interesting stuff uh, in yeah. that arena. We'll get a chance to talk about that, I'm sure. That's right. This kind of meta approach is, is, is a theme certainly in our, in our upcoming guest list for sure. Yep. The other uh, story I wanted to talk about real quick, and this one we won't spend a long time on, but if you're familiar with sort of cloud compliance, you understand that uh, NIST has a set of standards called CSF. Um, we were uh, familiar with version 1.x for a long time. Every cloud provider has this set of checks. Every uh, third-party um, uh, cloud posture manager has the CSF standard. If they don't, you're probably using the wrong one. Um, you know, a pretty basic set of do you have your cloud configured securely? You know, and it checks things like, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, do you have MFA enabled? Are you make sure you're not using your root account? You know, some some networking principles, how you've got your VPCs configured, what's public facing, what isn't, you know, fairly right. basic things. And so this is a, a, a well-needed update that, as you see on the screen, and let me zoom this up just a little bit, um, in terms of uh, the timeline, it's been going on for a while, but we're getting much closer to, um, you know, a, a, an actual draft of this. I think in, in the summer, a draft is expected. Uh, but you can uh, uh, refer to this document and actually refer to the community work that, the, that NIST did kind of in figuring out what would go into the version 2. And there's a bunch of pillars. It's really interesting. They're, they're viewing this as um, not so much kind of an independent standard. I mean, it is, and, and, and they want it to be, but they want it to be the technical, the practical part, mm. the, the marriage of, of some of these other sort of theoretical standards that say, you know, you must secure this, but don't say how. They kind of want to be the, the how you do it, which is an interesting perspective. And as a practitioner, one that's pretty appreciated for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, NIST is... Uh you know they're highly regarded they they've got a, a they're very well known they've you know i was talking to you earlier about and i should apologize to everybody i got a little bit of a cold so that's why i've been kind of rubbing my nose here so my my apologies um you know they did a similar framework on um iot and this was a number of years ago and it was not i mean it kind of missed the mark in a few places and i yeah. i uh but i think that in some of these areas where they've been for for longer and and i mean to be fair iot is is 
been such a, a moving target as well. I mean, it's no doubt. Uh, it's, no doubt. it's made it more difficult. But yeah. this will be welcome, and I think a lot of people will, will really uh, get a lot out of this. For, for sure, and, and a lot more focus, not surprisingly, on supply chain, on third-party risk management. You know, you'll you'll see that as they mention it. A little more focus on kind of federal applicability too. You know, as as we knew, yeah. certainly as a software vendor, which you and I have worked with a lot of them and for a lot of them. Um, you know, you try to sell into federal federal markets. It's 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 really tough. You need some certifications and some. Uh, uh, they're trying to make CSF kind of a little more federally robust too, and federally accepted, which is nice because having a whole separate. Fed ramp up, which is kind of NIST driven, not not CSF standard, a lot more formal, right. kind of NIST driven. Right. So it's nice to have maybe an in between that's a bridge, right? Um, right. Yeah, right. and the, and that CSF remains really straightforward, which probably means it won't be the most um, technical and in depth standard, right? There's a marriage between ease of use and that, but it'll be really accessible yeah. to all of us as it has been. So yeah, I'm looking forward to see the the version two yeah. for sure. Well, and your point about the the, the federal influence. I think it's fair to say, especially in the last, you know, six months, definitely some moves afoot on the part of administrations, not just here in the U.S., but all over on oh, yeah. uh, shoring up, uh, uh, cyber shoring up our protections, uh, our reporting, our defenses against ransomware. I mean, there's just and yep. I, I kind of find it interesting that we're finally actually going to go back and maybe hold the people that are accountable for the Swiss cheese, mm. um, right? I mean, the, the, if you build a product and it has a vulnerability and a failure that results, you know, I mean, how come it's my fault if I'm using your product? Should, That's right. You know, I mean, it's, That's right. It, you're, you're selling me a faulty product. Yep. So it's really, uh, it's an exciting time to be in this business, sure like is. always for the sure last is. 30 years. Okay, well, hey, I think we have a guest in our waiting room. Let's go find out who he is. Let's do it. Hey, Patrick, man, I got to tell you, I am so excited about our guest today. This guy is deep, deep, deep into cloud native. Frederick. Cots, the guy, I mean, he's a co-chair from KubeCon. He, he's a contributor. He sits on the steering committee for a Spiffy, which is a really cool identity play that we're mm -hmm. going to talk about. Uh, yes. This is going to be cool. So he's in the lobby. Let's let him in. Let's do it. Here we go. Frederick. Terrific. It's great to see you. Thanks so much. I want to introduce you to my co-host, Patrick Pusher. Patrick, this is Frederick Kotz, uh, as I mentioned already, co-chair of KubeCon, sits on the steering committee of Spiffy. He's a contributor at IEEE uh, Future Networks. He's a contributor at CNF. What is it? CNF, CNCF, Telecom User Group, uh, co-creator and uh Committer at uh, Network Service Mesh CNCF Sandbox Project. I mean, the list goes on. He's prolific. So real, so real business focus. No technology, it sounds like, right, Frederick? And, and, and I was going to say, <laughs> and he actually has a job, too. Uh, but that's really, we're going to focus on all the other contributions, you know, Linux Foundation, Public Health. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I just, I got to tell you, Frederick, I was so thrilled to meet you. Uh, to get introduced to you and then now to have you on the program. Really appreciate you being here. So thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. So listen, the way we start this off is I usually kind of just throw it right back at you. I, I'm clearly reading from uh, my LinkedIn on you, but why don't you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit uh, and tell our audience about you and what you want to talk about, because we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. I know Patrick is sitting here going, man, I can't wait, because he was already <laughs> talking about the Spiffy Project and the identities and stuff. So uh, anyway, I'll stop talking and let you talk. Fantastic. So uh, I think the best place to start is some of the stuff I've been focusing on more recently. So the most obvious one is the stuff going on with KubeCon. 
Uh, so uh, it's, it's a large cloud-native uh, conference focusing uh, not just on Kubernetes, but also on the cloud-native ecosystem as a whole with a strong emphasis in open source. Uh, the conference itself uh, it varies in terms of its size. Usually pulls in, I think, around between eight to twelve thousand people in person, wow. and then there's a whole online platform. Which I actually have no idea how large the online platform is, other than I know it's larger than the in person. Sure. So has, and it's got legs, right? I mean, it just yeah. goes on and on and on. And um, just in the scope of the size of that. Uh, we have around 100 program committee members for the whole thing, so it's a it's a huge endeavor, um, and so that's so that takes up a, a portion of my time. I also do a lot of uh, work on the uh, uh, on the cloud native security side, uh, focusing on one side is uh, for lack of a of a better buzzword uh, zero trust, and. Mm. Uh, also, recently, I've been doing a lot of work in the supply chain, um, like how do you secure software supply chains? Mm. Um, some of the things that I worked on there were related towards uh, software bill of materials. Uh, I helped with some of the initial uh, work back uh, when the U.S. government was first trying to draft, like, well, what is what type of things we want within a within a software bill of material? What kind of right. guidance do they want to give? And then that just been, uh, hasn't there been a fairly recent, I mean, executive order or something related to S bombs from Biden? Yeah, there there has been, and that's uh, that's a huge topic. But uh, the the gist of it is basically if you're selling to the U.S. government or you're building software as part of the U.S. government, they want to revamp their whole security practices. And so part of it is how do they get to zero trust? How do they get to software? Like what what's actually running in their software, uh, which ties into who produced or who sent it? There's some challenges here with open source as well because there's a lot of software out there that people use that... Uh, it's the providence is not always very clear and mm -hmm. there's also some risk where uh there have in the past been actually not just in the past but also i'm sure it's going on now that sometimes people are also harassed for their open source work uh, especially if they're uh women or minorities as well so you have to be mm -hmm. really careful in how you tie that in like if you bring in you say hey a requirement of this is we have to know the legal name of the person who built this thing uh, then that that ends up opening up a, a whole can of worms for yeah, that's a uh, good for point. people. No kidding. I mean, that's the whole value of open source is that you're crowdsourcing the minds of all these brilliant people. Uh, but I never, I never I thought even a lot thought of about that. You yeah. know that attribution. In, in some cases, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's one thing yeah. to say, oh, it's it's uh, uh, SSL or TLS or some something, but it's another thing to say, oh, well, it's Patrick Pusher who lives in Winnipeg, Canada, who wrote that particular portion. Yeah, who wow. do I come to with questions about, yeah, exactly the intricacies of this thing? Well, there's about uh, 400 of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's also... Pushing in that direction, um, there's other things that people can bind on as well, because part of the, the core question of uh, whenever you're trying to secure a system is, what should I trust? Uh, who should I trust? And, and what, in what context should I trust it? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's there's other things besides legal name that we can actually tie to. So you can look at the process. Like if you look at Kubernetes as a whole, there's a whole process around when you push something, when you push a uh, a pull request, and there's a code reviews that end up occurring across various individuals. And so at that point, the thing you're putting trust in is not any individual person, but you're putting your trust in the process. And that's before it goes to the vendors to then do their own audits and Amazing. and their own additional work on top of it. So uh, by the time you actually get to uh, an implementation that people are running in production, uh, there's several controls that have already gone in place. So there's things like that that we can try to bind to that I think are, uh, that I think are, are reasonable. And of course, we can always improve on them. Sure. Sure. So... Tell me, I mean, I really want to hear about, um, frankly, I want to hear about Spiffy. I want to hear about Spiffy, and I want to hear about the initiative, and I want to understand 
because it sounds very, very interesting. Patrick and I were talking about it a little bit more about how it seems like the as as compute and storage and connectivity continues to advance forward, the ability to abstract, right? Uh, it, it just continues to evolve, and this sounds similar to that. So uh, why don't you tell us about Spiffy and what it is and what you're doing, and, and uh, we'll dive in. Sure. Well, let me start with an analogy as well. So we have... Um in the past, uh, when you look like back in the 90s or so on, you look at how a lot of computer systems and how user accounts worked. Every single website, every single application had its own user account, user database. Um, worst case scenario, they stored the actual passwords. Um, mm -hmm. Best case scenario, they, they hashed them. Um, but what ended up happening was if you're running a, a large organization and you have something sensitive to protect, they realized very quickly that this was not going to be a defendable model. And so they came up with, well, let's do like single sign-on and let's get like a, a single, and that's like, you look at things like Novel Netware or you look at things like uh, Active Directory, as part of where they really took off was the ability to assign an identity to a, to a user. Uh, and then we eventually worked out how to federate those identities across boundaries. So you could use your Google identity to log into right. a single into source. A, yeah. And, <laughs> Um, when you start looking at uh, workloads themselves, so part of the path towards uh, towards zero trust is there's there's a couple ways that if you look at the NIST documentation that you can possibly achieve. There's different models, um, but one of the models is well, how about we give every workload, everything that's running, every system, every device, a cryptographic identity. In the same way that every user has a cryptographic identity. And those devices, when they connect from one device to another or one service to another, we check, okay, well, what is the identity of the thing that I'm that I'm connecting to? And it turns out that we had some pretty good uh, work there in terms of like you connect to your to a bank, you're using some X509 certificate. You're using TLS to connect into it. Uh, your browser will check the identity of the um, of the the bank's website, and then mm -hmm. you make a decision at that point whether you want to continue on or not. Uh, and when you start looking at uh, workload identities across uh, systems, it's a it's a similar it's a similar path. Like if we can, in terms of Spiffy, so Spiffy starts with an X five line certificate, uh, and if if you can control how that identity gets attested. And you can check certain things like, is this thing is this thing running in an environment that I control? Uh, you could tie it down to maybe some piece of hardware like the TPM, or if you're in a cloud, tie it down to the AWS identity document or GCP. There's a workload identity uh, that you can attach to. And so if you start with something like that that's cryptographically um, defendable, then you can then create a uh, an X509 certificate that's generic enough so that you can connect to things across boundaries. So you might have mm -hmm. multiple clouds, you're working on-premise, and you have you now have this well-structured X509 document. And when you connect with mutual TLS, or rather with TLS, you can do it in both directions. So the client checks the server and, check, and checks its identity. The server checks the client's identity to make sure that they match. And then... The trick is you then create your policies to not bind off of IP address and port, which is what you commonly see in, in firewalls. Right. But yeah. instead, you say this specific uh, example.com slash application slash workload is allowed to connect to uh, example.org uh, application slash workload. So you can then set that type of those rules where you're being very explicit with the type of, of connectivity that that's your that that is set up and what's nice about this is like if you trust me like well just even just in my own environment if if i'm setting it up in this particular way that means i can write my policies in a way that works across multiple clouds or it works right. in um and if i don't have to worry about well did the ip address change or the port change uh, right. and if i'm connecting across boundaries like if you trust me to test my workloads properly and I trust you to test your workloads properly and then we can share our CAs at the top and then now I can validate your identities and you can validate my identities and then my policy is now instead of scoping it to uh, to my company I scope the, the the domain to your company and say these are the type of things that I can that I can drive sure sure and so 
And still, you're you're still pulling in Visual TLS. You're still pulling in something that you can that you can automate. And so, this this pulls in a really nice effect because it's not only about how do you identify something, but it also gives an opportunity where if, now that this is an automated path, if you do it often enough, and in the case of Spiffy, we do we rotate all the identities uh, every half hour. They expire by default on the hour. And so what this does is it causes you to go through the attestation process continuously. Like, let's double check. Is it still running in the TPM? Is it still running mm -hmm. in the environment, in the Kubernetes cluster, namespace that mm -hmm. I want it to run? Is it running the image I want it to run? So you can, like, check all of these different things. And once you finally have enough information to make a decision, you then issue, you reissue that identity. And so you get this this constant uh, rechecking of your infrastructure also gives an opportunity as well, and we haven't quite gone to this just yet, but it also gives the opportunity to get down to uh, running inventory of your whole of your yeah. whole infrastructure. So that's right. really where I'm trying to push things is not, is not to just say, hey, what are the identities, but also to be able to say these are the things that that are that are running, and uh, and we know that the, that that they are those things because we check them every hour. Right, yeah. constantly. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Frederick, and, do I need do I need an agent in my workload for this to work? Uh, right now, with it depends on where on um, uh, so Spiffy itself is uh, is a specification. So the actual specification is just how do you structure the X five and I sure. uh, and that part you don't it's you don't really need an agent for that. Uh, for the reference implementation, which is called Spire, there is an agent attached to it. Uh, that is a implementation decision of Spire itself, but you don't always need right. a agent in order right. to in order to use the uh, identity document that, that's that's described. I see. I asked where I was headed was you know does does that preclude me from being able to leverage it in you know functions as a service, for example, where maybe I don't maintain enough of the system to be able to do so right that is a fantastic question and that's actually one of the challenges we had with the implementation of spire the way the way that it was set up was the fact that you had this agent that was there um part of it is you have the system has some things to help with it so there's a there's an agent and there's a server so the agent pre presents will gather information and will then present information evidence to the server and then the server makes a determination based on the rules you set as to what it wants to do so that definitely helps but when you start to do function as a service like i want to run this in lambda or i uh, take it the other extreme you want to run it on on an on-premise system in a secure enclave and we can jump into what sure. that is in a few moments yeah. if you like but mm -hmm. in those environments you don't really have the the agent itself is considered to be part of the workload at, at that point and that changes the threat model in a way that uh, aspire had not really accounted for uh, and so there's ongoing work in order to solve that particular issue within the reference implementation, but the actual SVID itself, the actual document itself, uh, doesn't have any limitations in that respect other than is this an X, do you have an X509 certificate that, that matches the, a specific structure? Sure, right. Yeah, because, you, you know, I, I hear what you're saying around implementation because there's a lot of information, if implemented differently, I can get about a workload, you know, externally, if that workload is in a certain environment, right? Dependent, again, on where it runs and what I'm able to kind of read from that environment. But yeah, that, that makes sense to me for sure. Yeah. And I think there's also other challenges that you have as well when you look at the secure enclave environment where... Yeah. It turns out that common things you expect to work in a POSIX environment are not always available in Secure Enclave. And so for those who are listening and don't know what a Secure Enclave is, think of it like a, a section of memory that is carved out for a process where that memory is fully encrypted to the host so that the host operating system cannot inspect what's inside of the Secure Enclave. And vice versa, the Secure Enclave cannot inspect what's inside of the host operating system. So it creates this nice uh, dividing line. And the, the keys for those are stored within the processor itself. So there's no path to extract them out. So it provides this, this nice path. But the problem is that you don't have the host operating system there to help you. And right. so things like POSIX or things like uh, simple things like fork uh don't work the way that you'd expect them to, or just literally not present. And mm -hmm. you have, to, if you want something that looks like for, like fork, you have to implement it yourself, uh, but also in a way that doesn't rely on any other POSIX uh, 
related uh, things that the operating system gives you. So there's so the idea is uh, well, let's run them as two separate processes. Well, you can't really run them as two separate processes in that way. If you want to run them as two separate, it's like maybe you decide to bring in the agent and, and tie it together. It's like you can't exec it in, in the way that you expect it to. So it's there's a lot of challenges like that that, that end up occurring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It, uh, and as you're saying, it's so similar to the I don't have that much control over, you know, the the host because I'm running a function as a service. They're not that different, right? Uh, yeah. N- no control, no ability to run something that isn't there. Yeah, for for sure, for sure, that makes sense. I kind of, you know, I wonder what's your take on the enterprise view of open source these days, right? Because we think about this as an enabler to the somewhat panacea use case of multi-cloud. Now we call it super cloud, right? Apps that use more than one cloud provider and maybe even do that semi-autonomously based on some sort of criteria, right? This is an enabler to that, absolutely. But I kind of wonder, you know, in 2023, under maybe more scrutiny in places, less scrutiny in others, what's the prevailing enterprise kind of view on open source software? Has it changed? Well, it's definitely changed. I mean, it, it you have to look at what time scale it's it's changed. Like, how much has it changed in the past year versus how much has it changed in the past ten years? Of course, um, a couple a couple interesting trends that I'm seeing in the open source communities is we're seeing a lot more large enterprises get comfortable with the concept of having a an operate an open source. Uh, uh, organization internally that helps to define how their employees can engage with with open source beyond just the consumption of it and Mm -hmm. this is something that the vendors for a long time have realized that that collaboration like how many of them work on kubernetes together and then they they all compete in in other areas but Mm -hmm. when you start looking at how does this work with uh, within the enterprise environments, they're starting to realize that they can affect um, the features that they want and by actually yeah. contributing and right. get, steering. Get, yeah. yeah, so they also help uh, not just on the development side, but also on the uh, the governance side, where they can they can provide good governance that reflects the needs of the of of. The enterprise, and there's also there's also a very other important point to, on this as well, which is um, it turns out the people who develop the software are often not the people who actually run it at scale. And so you look at pick any any vendor that you that you want in the Kubernetes space, they have a lot of customers who are running at scale, and they certainly provide information back, but it's it's less common to see the developers of those systems actually running it them, themselves and this turns so out to be really important because you only discover there's there's a set of a class of problems you only really discover when you actually run it yourself when you experience the the, the pain and mm-hmm. it, oh, in kubernetes that's doubly triply quadruply true probably i mean the early days for sure i remember the pain <laughs> right yeah it was, and, and this is why the clouds have done so well with Kubernetes is because they provide as close to a turnkey solution as uh, as you can currently get. So yeah. people who are running on premise; they're they're running things in in hard mode. Like they have to, they have so many things that are not taken care of that they have to pay attention to. Um, of course, they also become very good at it. Like there's there's groups who do some pretty amazing stuff with it. But I've also have seen some companies get caught out with. They use Cube Admin to install their Kubernetes cluster, and then they say, "Well, we're running it in an isolated environment, so we don't really need to keep up with the updates." Not realizing that the certificates that are installed by Cube Admin expire after one year, and uh, after one year passes, if they're not paying attention to it, suddenly their cluster like freezes. They they can't really do anything until they rotate those certificates, and then now they have to find somebody mm-hmm. who has the expertise while right. things are on fire while they have teams of people not getting their AI uh, machine uh, machine models trained up or whatever other right. major tasks right. are doing. So, so, so maybe this maturity is through some hard lessons learned really around kind of, you know, what open source is. And, and I'd like to think that the, the by the, the, the newer, uh, and like you say, in relative terms, newer, but the newer bi-directional flow is, you know, it is more than just some, um, some realized selfishness. Maybe it is right. But, but to your point, 
they they gain the ability to maybe steer a little bit uh, uh, more when they contribute back, right? Which I think is the the interesting part and the, probably the valuable part to them. But it, it's good to hear that there's 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 more um, more accessibility, more use in general. Because you know, for a long time, there's kind of looked at as this uh, 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 too risky, right? And when in reality, it's it's uh, nothing's free, and this needs supportability. And you can achieve supportability, but you can't simply by downloading the repo and running it, right? I mean, there, there has to be a fair bit of planning, and it sounds like that's starting to happen more and more. Yeah, and there's also there, there's also the um, the effect where let's say I, let's say it's a contribution to documents, and uh, by the way, I think like contributing to Kubernetes documents is one of the best ways you can impact oh, the community. No and kidding. If you focus on on adding some more to to like some edge case that you run into or you, or some something that was not as well described that you, you tripped over, like those are it, those are things that once you've contributed to them, it's if you walk away from the project for like maybe you moved on to another job, won the lottery, or sitting on a beach, um, mm-hmm. that. It, that's because you have a community there that th- they will help they'll help uh, take that particular change and make sure that it stays up to to date as best as they as best as they can over time and what ends up happening is that you, the changes get uh, the costs gets amortized across multiple mm. uh, organizations and it's really important to, to think of it from a cost perspective as well because if if it's more expensive to run kubernetes than to roll your own then guess what people are going to do and so over time the more companies that we get involved who are helping making it easier to run or or writing that 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 documentation or automation automation or so on it's it's something that reduces the total cost for everyone and continues to help the the, the whole ecosystem uh, really flourish yeah i mean it, it makes perfect sense i wonder how it sort of dovetails with this trend of enterprises outside of the open source kind of side of things you know enterprises have been telling us for a long time that they favor platforms instead of point solutions right for for multiple reasons some of them more true in reality than others, I think. But, I mean, open source must be a challenge with that kind of perspective. You know, never mind point solutions. Now I've got kind of a project that needs a lot more supportability than potentially a commercial one does, at least, you know, from my own responsibilities kind of perspective, right? So I I wonder if open source suffers even more under this kind of prevailing attitude that, you know, I'm looking for kind of unified platforms these days. Yeah, but one of the things that uh, scares me a little bit is... Uh is uh, feature creep and so it becomes very very easy to say well i have a platform it does this thing this really great thing for me in microservices uh but i really need somewhere to put my stateful things and then now you have your stateful things in there and you say well i really need something where i can get high availability for it so you add in your high ability features and it's like oh we really need uh, web assembly we really need and so there's and granted that that is very similar to the path that uh, kubernetes itself took uh, but you have to you have to also remember that that takes a very large community to maintain. Now, Kubernetes is fortunate that last I checked, it has I believe the second largest developer community in the world, uh, wow. second only to the Linux kernel itself. Oh, wow. And so, so there's there's enough people there that over time, I mean, some things will work, some things won't. We learn things along the way, um, but. Um, I had one conversation with a company. It was uh, this one was a telecommunications company, and they're like, "We're getting ready to to fork Kubernetes. It's going to be great. We're going to add in all these features that we need." And I slowed them down. I was like, "Well, is that really something you want to do?" And explained to them exactly what I mentioned to you about the size of it. I was like, "Okay, well, in the beginning, yeah, you can capture and you you copy over the patches and apply them and see them work. But over time, your features are going to continue to diverge." That's right eventually you're going to get to a point where you can't really cleanly merge the patches anymore, which means you're left holding the bag on all that complexity. And so you're better yeah, off. You're now a software producer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like a legit one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, uh, and you have to ramp up very quickly in that scenario. So rather, uh, and rather than take that particular path, if you, it's, it ends up being, 
uh, more cost effective for them to continue working in, in the long run with, with the community. So there's that drive that sits there. Uh, that particular uh, organization, by the way, uh, the very next day uh, made an announcement that they were not going to do that. So I was pretty, pretty happy with that. Awesome. But but it's it shows like in in terms of uh in terms of any community like you have an you'll have an expansion you'll have a period where uh things are like eventually all communities hit a hit a peak and eventually there'll be a, a contraction and so part of uh part of kubernetes is we have two challenges that we that i believe we have to focus on the first one is how do we make sure the things that we do that are not so welded together so that not if, but when the contraction occurs, and I don't think it'll occur in the near future, but like might happen, let's say 10 years down the line, this contraction occurs, mm -hmm. that you have enough modularity that you can start to mm -hmm. remove or reduce things as you no longer as you no longer need them and you focus on the right. things that really provide you that value. Or the, the second approach is to make sure that the things you build will work after Kubernetes, that you can apply them into other into other environments. Mm -hmm. And um, it really depends. It's it's not like there's a, a correct answer for for any of this stuff because there might be a problem that for the next five years is really fantastic and has that shelf life and maybe you decide to go all in on that and that's not a bad not a bad choice. Um, there's others where if you really weld into it, it's like you have to consider uh, what the what the long term impact is going to be if you want to have something uh, last for a long period of time to make sure that 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 you don't overextend yourself and that's really the key is like you don't grow to a point so that when that contraction occurs that you don't you're not left uh with this massive team that right. that you're trying to that right. you're trying to pay and there aren't, um, there aren't a lot of models right because a lot of commercial vendors won't think of things quite like this some some will the most responsible will but a lot won't think about you know how do i build this in a in a modular enough fashion that it's usable after the core of what i'm doing is gone i mean that's a that's a pretty uh, pretty abstract uh, in terms of planning, at least. I, I'd imagine that's a tall order. I think yeah, about the government and how they didn't do that, right? With all the COBOL programmers <laughs> that they still have. I mean, seriously, right? I mean, yeah, when you, it, to try to apply that logic, philosophy, that approach, yeah. that philosophy would really have. I mean, look at the quagmire they're in today. I mean, they ha there's just so many legacy apps that they're just, they're tar babies they can't get rid of, uh, no matter yeah, how but, much they'd like to. But, well, but to your point, Frederick, it's hard. Time? It's hard and costly, right? So do you, pay, do, you know? do you pay now or do you continue paying a COBOL programmer <laughs> $300 an hour because, you know, they're in such small demand, right? It's a, it's. It's, it's a tough decision. It really is. I, I can imagine th those decisions are, are some of the most difficult in terms of where do I spend my resources? Well, and yeah. I, I forecasting the future, right? I mean, seeing yeah. in the crystal ball, that's what we're talking about. Because, you know, I was telling Patrick, and I think you may have heard this, Frederick, you know, I always, I kind of, I'm an analogy guy, and I see the technology industry, the cloud as a river and there's some parts of the river that are moving a lot faster than other parts and certainly cloud native is fastest part of the river and that was what got us into talking about platform versus you know leading cool solution that's a point solution and that dichotomy i think will prevail especially in the fast water right because it's changing so much and there's no way the big platform players can keep up with the cool new stuff well almost ever you don't yeah. you don't have to also have a, a, a perfect uh, prediction either there's things that you can do and so one of the examples is if you make a bet on http you're probably going to be okay and so you look <laughs> at like the various standards that are that are there uh if it's to really identify which of those standards are going to have that longevity that you're able to to bind against, and it's one of the reasons why we have the the Spiffy specification separate from. It's actually a, a fully separate project from the Spire uh, implementation, yeah. mm -hmm. and the reason why is again Spire has a shelf, a shelf life, and eventually even that will. Uh, there'll be other things that, uh, that that do things better for the environments that they're in. And when you look at something 
like uh, like X five X five and nine. Like X five and nine is very likely going to be around for a very long period of time, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has the, been around for a fair, fairly yeah, long it's, period Yeah, it's of one time. of the X protocols. Like, how many yeah. X protocols are, are left actually? There's a couple of them, but not, not, very, mm-hmm. not very many of them that people still yep. run on a day-to-day right. basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you look at, at something like, uh, like Spiffy, the, the bet is that if, you, if Spiffy is successful, that that is a standard that you can bind to. And it doesn't matter if the thing behind the identity is a mainframe, is uh, right. is a window system, is a uh, cloud-native Kubernetes app, or something very different in the future. Um, that we have that thing that acts as like that dial-tone identity, dial-tone security. And then at that point, you can continue to, to rely on it over time. Mm-hmm. So I think... Is identifying those standards that you want to adhere to and spending time uh, to to work and help them grow, but help them mature is is something that can help you not have to have a crystal ball in order right. to make in order to make sure that you're okay in the long run. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Um, but speaking of COBOL, I actually uh, have a friend who. Was on the original uh, team that uh, that actually created COBOL. Like they actually wrote out the whole spec and everything. And he's most of his uh, colleagues are unfortunately not with us anymore. Or yeah, uh, or many of them have health problems that prevent them from being able to contribute. Uh, yeah. But there he is, still writing writing away. And they just got their last uh, COBOL spec out. I think uh, this last wow. January. So. Um, yeah it's pretty it's pretty amazing and so it uh, it shows like there's still there's still active work going on there there's still there's still value there that people are still willing to to work and and continue to to evolve the language over time yeah it's amazing well it's you know i've said this many many times what i love about this industry is no matter when we get in it we're getting in at the beginning of something even if it's something that's really old, but is continuing to uh, evolve and be modified and enhanced. I mean, it's it's exciting. And it's also super exciting to be involved, frankly, and to meet and work with people like you, Frederick, that are, I would argue, out at the front of the wave. Uh, you know, this is a really, I love the concept of having an identity that allows me to go wherever i Anywhere. go right Anywhere. i mean yeah. i i mean i think that's brilliant from a digital perspective right um so kudos to you and um really you know excited to follow and see how that project goes and see it come to fruition really thank you very much frederick for for coming on the program today it was really awesome oh, it was my pleasure thank you thank you very much like um i think Things like uh, like Spiffy and so on are, are incredibly important for for the future of. Uh, I I think a good way to to word it is you look at how systems were in the past and they were very static. There you install a system, you put your network up, you put your firewall up. You that's right. Um, and now like we have we have systems that literally come online for. Uh, for a few milliseconds, respond to an HTTP request and then they disappear. Yeah. And so the level of of dynamicness is just really stunning. And we are, and and we're only at the start of that uh, that path. Like you look at the work that's going on with uh, now we can actually run workloads in CDNs, and you could have a full running web application. Uh, including object storage and databases and everything, with with the entire thing living in in CDNs. Uh, so we're we're getting to this really really interesting place, and it's it's something that as technologists we're going to have to learn how to how to adapt to and how to and how to secure and well, it's really, all, really yeah. govern. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's it, I I believe you know there there are three four key components that are just continuing and are going to continue to drive this and it's it's connectivity it's compute it's bandwidth and it and it's storage right and and as we get to these i mean look at right now i don't know what i pay a dollar 99 for a month but i'm not even close to using it 
right? Uh, I have more pictures than I know what to do with on this bloody thing um, because they're just going up and getting stored. You know, it's and my point is all this stuff coming together continues to allow for just amazing innovation like Spiffy and other projects. And it's super exciting and uh, really appreciate you sharing it with us, Pat, uh, Frederick. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's great always having you. I'm sorry I slipped that up almost. So, <laughs> no, but no, Frederick, thank you. serious, man. It was really awesome. Thank you. Go ahead, Patrick. You can give him some kudos before we go. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, uh, you know, uh, one of the things uh, I wanted to talk to you about that maybe we can, you know, maybe we can have a startup stand-up segment and instead of have a startup, maybe focus on, you know, a technology. Because, you know, in the spirit of uh, uh, of innovation, it's not always commercial, right? Sometimes it, it has different kind of roots and maybe we can kind of think about that in the future. I think Frederick's been good inspiration for that, for sure. I think that's a brilliant idea. You know, we, so you know, Frederick, we have a segment, Startup Stand-Up, where we feature different startups where they can tell whatever they want to tell. No, you know, the gloves are off. It's their 20 yeah. minutes. Um, this would be a great time for you or uh, someone else to really Anyone articulate else, yeah. Spiffy, yeah. Uh, explain the project, show it, whatever. I mean, that would be really awesome. I think that would be that's a great idea, Patrick. So if you're amenable, yeah, think- we'd love to set that up. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay. Cool. Everybody agrees. Well, we'll be in touch. We'll get you scheduled, Frederick. Thank you again for uh, being our guest. And I guarantee you we're going to want you back because I know there's lots more we could talk about with you. <laughs>